The next series of cases was presented to Drs. Muss and Swain. When selecting patients to present at these meetings, we always keep an eye out for current cases that the treating physician would like some help with. And immediately prior to starting this recording session, Dr. Jeff Basirka came up to me and described a patient he had just evaluated for whom he desperately wanted some input. I asked Dr. Vaserka to outline the situation for the group. I actually got involved with this case somewhat impromptu yesterday. She's a 32-year-old female who, when I saw her initially on Friday, was 31 weeks pregnant. She had been diagnosed with breast cancer in 2003. At the time, she was 29. She had a T2N1 invasive ductal carcinoma, poorly differentiated. She underwent a right-sided mastectomy. At the time, she had a long discussion with her oncologist, was very concerned about contralateral recurrence, and opted for a prophylactic left-sided mastectomy. She had primary reconstruction done and was started on tamoxifen at the time. So was the tumor ER positive? It was ERPR, HER2 new positive. Obviously, at the time, the adjuvant data for trastuzumab wasn't out. She did get started on tamoxifen. About five, six months ago, she decided she wanted to get pregnant. She was advised by her oncologist that it wasn't such a wonderful idea, but nevertheless, she stopped her tamoxifen and became pregnant. Could I just interrupt you at one second just to sort of flesh it out at this point, at the point that she goes to her oncologist and said, should I get pregnant? Hi, could you track through a little bit about how you think through advice to women about whether to get pregnant? And also, I'd like you to comment on the question of delayed trastuzumab at that point. That was how long after diagnosis? Three years. Three years later. Okay. So she's 29 in 2003. She has like T2N1. You know, she's a high-risk patient. She's a young patient, which probably adds to her risk. Her highest risks of recurrence are going to be in the first five years. So for me, I would probably tell a patient like this to wait it out, especially at 29 for the five years, when her hazard ratios for risk are still going to be there, but they're going to be much lower after about that time. Now, so, is that primarily an endocrinologic thing that you're concerned about the tumor or a more social thing about the impact of relapse? I think it's a social thing. I think that, I don't know what we're going to hear on the punchline here, but I suspect now with Mets and pregnancy or something, which is just devastating. So it would be the social thing to me. I think if she got out the five years her risk of recurrence drops dramatically, and then she's still at risk of recurrence, but it's more unlikely, as opposed to may it be what has happened here. And then what about the issue of delayed trastuzumab yeah. at three years? I would not do it. I've been generally, as a rule, if it's over a year or so, I haven't been reinstituting it. I don't know if that's right. Now, if someone came in and had 21 positive nodes, and it's 15 months, I'd probably consider it. But Those are a small percentage of the patients we see. So I use about a year. So Sandy, same question. What advice would you give about pregnancy? What about delayed trastuzumab? I would differ a little bit with what Hi said. More than half of the recurrences for a patient who has an ER-positive tumor will happen after five years. So I think that that, for me, would not be a reason to tell her not to get pregnant because her recurrence risk is going to be you know, pretty high at 10 What about years. HER2 positive, ER positive? Do you know the time sequence of recurrence there? I don't really know. I don't think we have a database on that because a question came up with the trial that was just presented with the aromatase inhibitor and Herceptin. Those patients in metastatic disease actually had a very poor 
disease-free survival, and we had a lot of discussion about that. There's really not a big database of what happens with those patients, but it looks like they have a poor prognosis. So high may be right in that group of patients. No, you would think the data is in the adjuvant trials, right? It should be. They just haven't looked at it, really? They haven't broken that out yet. Or maybe it's ER. not long enough follow-up, actually, I guess. I think it's definitely not long enough follow-up. It's only a two- to three-year follow-up for most of the trial. In in this case, and she was about two years out, I guess, after she three finished years. her... Yeah, two well, and a half, three years. After yeah. her treatment. I tell patients that at least all the data that's been collected suggests that it's not an increased risk to get pregnant. So the patients have two questions. One, am I going to be around to see my children? Number two, is it going to increase my risk? So the data doesn't suggest that there will be an increased risk. And in a young woman who really wants to get pregnant, I don't feel like I have enough data to say you can't get pregnant. So I don't dissuade them strongly. The second question about the trastuzumab, in the trials, when they ended, when the results came out, the patients were allowed to be crossed over who hadn't received trastuzumab. And we used about six months. So this is way out. It's two years beyond that. So I would not recommend trastuzumab either at this point for this patient, as you were describing her in you know, if it were now and she had no problems, I guess is your question. Cecil? The data regarding the safety of pregnancy in someone who's had breast cancer, does that apply to both ER positive, ER negative? Has that analysis been done? It's been reviewed by several people. I can't even remember the latest review I saw in the last few months. And it actually suggests that those patients did better. But the patients who got pregnant did better. But it's very, very biased because it's not randomized. And obviously, it's difficult data to collect. But there's nothing that supports patients having a worse outcome. Hi. I think what all these studies in pregnancy show is it's just harder to detect the cancer. Mm. You know, So you have a woman with large breasts. They're lumpy and bumpy. And if you look at the literature, they do worse as a group. But when you adjust for stage, they don't do worse in modern series. So, what about people who get pregnant after they've had, in terms of relapse? I agree with Sandy. I mean, the bulk of the literature shows no increased risk for the groups who get pregnant after about two years. There was one New England Journal paper a few years ago that in the first year, but it's a zebra. So I think getting pregnant after the two years is probably safe and doesn't increase risk. Your real risk is what your cancer was before you got pregnant. And I do think we know a little bit about these patients because in the intergroup trial, in the HERA trial, these patients had a very high rate of relapse in the first few years, hence those trials being unblinded with a short follow-up of a year or two and showing the spectacular data. So although the data Sandy mentioned are correct as far as all patients who are ER and PR positive, I think people like this with lots of nodes who are ER positive have a very high risk of recurrence in the first few years. And that is borne out by the large intergroup trials. And about half those patients are ER positive in those big HER2 trials. So there are lots of ER positive patients in those trials. And although we don't know the optimal duration of AIs, and we're going to talk about that today, Tamoxin, we do know that by stopping at two years, she left a little bit of recurrence reduction on the table there, because we know five is better than two. Dr. Hoffman? Just a question. The issue of giving chemotherapy. Premenopausal, very young person, at very high risk, because she was worrying about fertility. Well, she did receive chemotherapy. She did, okay. And she didn't become amenorrheic, or she did briefly? For a short period of time, and then then she regained. What was the chemotherapy? She received dose-dense AC-taxol. Because that's another big issue is in this young woman at age 29, would you want to consider ovarian ablation? 
and it's not standard of care to do it, but in someone young like this with very high risk, I consider it. Of course, at that's going to be an presented. issue in terms of her desire to have children. You can use Zolodex right. or you can Zolodex. Be What about Zolodex? Right, for, that's what I mean. Would you go like Chemical two years, castration. five years? You know, the woman sitting there wanting to have a child, what would be the minimal duration you'd like to see her have? The minimal duration would be two years because that's what a lot of the studies have done. But I think five years would be ideal. Obviously, if she were willing, I would want her to go on one of the clinical trials that's testing this question, which is an extremely important question, because she may benefit most from hormonal therapy and targeted therapy to HER2, so targeting both ER and HER2 rather than chemotherapy. And if you want to go down that route a little bit farther, hi, she grabs you by your lapels and said, I'm not worried about getting pregnant. I want every possible thing that can be done with me. You're suggesting LHRX agonist. What about an AI instead of tamoxifen? Well, we all say, you know, it's research. That's the politically correct statement. But there are randomized trials in metastatic disease looking at LHRH plus TAM versus LHRH plus I think it's anastrozole. They're not huge studies. They may have 200 patients, but they show response, time to progression. Yeah, Bob Carlson and, has a series that uh, he's and, out there, too. And so I think in a very high-risk patient like this, it's a reasonable thing to do. I think there are major issues for estrogen deprivation that that's profound, because when you do the LHRH and TAM, you're going to have some beneficial effects on TAM, on bone, maybe on cardiovascular But I think it's a reasonable thing to do in a very high-risk patient. And obviously, we're testing this now in two huge worldwide clinical trials, the SOFT trial and the TEX trial. And it's interesting, the TEX trial, which is using ovarian suppression in all patients and then randomizing to tamoxifen or exemestane, has taken kind of a quantum leap that ovarian ablation and endocrine therapy is better because there's no TAM alone arm. So I think it shows the uncertainty in this area. Sandy, you were mentioning our patterns of care work that we've been doing. And one of the things that we've seen is there are a fraction of oncologists who take this kind of strategy, probably about a quarter or a third, who in a very high risk, young woman who menstruates right through chemo, will consider an AI plus an LHRH agonist. Do you think that that's sort of an irrational consideration or should only be done on trial? Well, we would like to see it done on trial, obviously, because we want to get the answer to the question. But when you're faced with a patient, you don't have the trial. And a patient that's 29 with all these risk factors, I think it's a very reasonable thing to do. And I've actually personally done it myself. Okay, so let's follow up. What's the next step? So subsequently, she became pregnant about five months ago. About four months into the pregnancy, developed right upper quadrant discomfort, not consistent with her pregnancy. She had an ultrasound done which showed multiple hepatic metastases. One of these was biopsy. The pathology was consistent with metastatic breast cancer, very similar to her original. It was ERPR positive as well as HER2 new overexpressing. And what's her condition at this point, physically and emotionally? Emotionally, she's obviously a mess. Physically, she's in good shape. She does have some discomfort. Her liver function tests are all normal, but nevertheless, she has multiple liver lesions. What kind of support does she have? She has a husband. She has family who lives nearby, so she has adequate social support. And I'm sorry, she's 31 weeks or 21? At this point, she was about 26 weeks pregnant. Can you sort of bring us up to today? So at that point, she's seeing one of my partners who, seeing that she does have now gross metastatic disease and she's mildly symptomatic, decided to put her on chemo. He gave her cytoxin, 
alone after really sitting down trying to figure out what else he could give her and that there's really, he could find no good clinical studies using trastuzumab and didn't have a comfort level with that. She got one cycle and three weeks later was getting ready to get her next one and developed shortness of breath and chest pain. This is when I saw her last Friday. At this point, she was brought to the ER. She had a CT angio done to rule out pulmonary embolism. The child was adequately shielded. She didn't have a pulmonary embolism, but she was found to have multiple bony lesions in her spine, as well as a pathologic fracture to her right rib. Now, at this point, my, I'm the only one who goes to this particular hospital, so I became <laughs> default involved in the case. Can you change that? Yeah. So has she seen her high-risk OBGYN so doctor? At, at that point, I got in touch with the high-risk OBGYN, and she's now 31 weeks pregnant, and I imparted to him that I thought it was important that we should deliver the baby if the baby was viable and there wasn't any foreseeable problems, and at the same time, I asked him to perform an oophorectomy. So yesterday, she delivered the baby by C-section, and she had her ovaries removed. How big was the baby, and how's the baby doing? baby's great. Healthy, adequate size for 31 weeks, no pulmonary problems, not intubated. Awesome. So hi, now what? Well, I think to me, more important than the medical issue is the social issue for this patient, to get good social support, whatever it is, because all therapy for her is palliative. And no matter what we do now, she has a miserable prognosis with this degree of recurrence. So I would spend a lot of my focus on having her be with that baby and get everything done. So when it comes, you know, when she's critically ill in six months, a year, or three months, whenever it is, that she's at least resolved that issue because she's probably having the same thoughts about getting pregnant and going back and retracing her life now, maybe doing this again, which you addressed initially and stopping the tamoxifen and being pregnant. So I think she needs tremendous social support. As far as treatment, quite frankly, I think no matter what we do in this patient, she's going to have a bad outcome now that she's like this. I take it her meds are progressing very quickly, you know, and symptomatic. Correct. Yeah, as of a couple weeks ago, she had no bony pain whatsoever. Alkfos was normal. This is a dramatic change. So when they did that CT of her liver, they usually see the bones. So that they in ultrasound. I'm sorry. Because the pregnancy at the time. Yeah, good point. Well, you did the ophorectomy. I mean, you could wait it out a little bit and see what happens. I suspect it's not going to be very effective. But everything we do here is palliative. So if her pain was in control, she doesn't have any impending cord lesion, you can easily follow her clinically. What about some hormone therapy on top of the ophorectomy? It would be certainly reasonable to put her on an AI now or even maybe reinstitute tamoxifen. But I put her on the AI because with this rapid recurrence of METs with the two, three years of the TAM, to me, if it helped her, it was still very unsatisfactory. So adding an AI would be fine here. But I would be content to wait out the hormones a little bit with normal LFTs, with minimal symptoms, give her a better chance to maybe get to know her baby a little bit and bond with the baby before getting into chemotherapy and back on Herceptin and everything. So I think it's reasonable to do that. I suspect it's not going to work very well, but I don't think you take much risk by following her closely and seeing if the hormones work. How would you be thinking through what to do right now, Sandy? Well, I think even though she has a poor prognosis, and I agree that she's definitely going to die of her disease, she had a disease-free interval of almost three years, two and a half, three years, which is not insignificant. And 
That's one issue. The second issue is she seems to be symptomatic and her disease is progressing rapidly now. So the way I would see it, you'd have at least three choices. One would be to stick with the ovarian ablation as a primary treatment or use an AI as hormonal therapy alone. Two would be to add trastuzumab to either the ovarian ablation you've already done or AI. And the recent study that was presented at ESMO did this where anastrozole versus anastrozole trastuzumab, the progression-free survival was better with the combination, but it was still very poor. It was only about four or five months. So the patients did progress pretty rapidly. So I just saw that data a couple of weeks ago, and it made me think a lot about this situation. So I would probably choose the third choice in her and to give her chemotherapy with trastuzumab and get a response since she has symptomatic disease. And then once she gets a response, stop the chemotherapy and give her endocrine therapy with trastuzumab at that point. Which chemotherapy, and would you add an AI right now? I wouldn't add an AI right now, no, because I think she's already had one hormonal therapy. The chemotherapy choices that I would think about would either be navalbine, trastuzumab, which I find a wonderful combination. I used to use navalbine a lot, as many of you probably did. It never works at all in patients who are HER2 negative. I participated in the trial, never had a response. But now it's just like magic. It works in patients. So I like that combination. It's weekly, and patients tolerate it pretty well. Or you could use taxotere carboplatin. That's much harder on the patient, I think. But it would certainly be a good choice or even taxotere alone with trastuzumab based on the BCIRG007 data. So I think that any of those choices would be okay. I would probably do the navalbine because she's already had the taxane in the adjuvant setting. Any other questions you have, Jeff? My gestalt had been that I didn't want to wait and give her the chance to manifest more symptoms. And I was considering NAPEC, Letaxel, Carbo, Herceptin, but I'll certainly consider the navalbine Herceptin. How do you feel about NAB in a non-protocol setting in this situation with trastuzumab? Well, I think that it's basically paclitaxel, as Mike Hawkins was quoted as saying in the New York Times (laughs) from the ODAC (laughs) meeting, which was a very interesting quote. So it is paclitaxel. She's had that in the dose-dense setting, in the adjuvant setting. That doesn't mean she wouldn't respond now. I wouldn't not use it. So I would just choose something else in this symptomatic patient to try to get a response. So I would probably just not choose that. Hi. Yeah, two things. One, I would say if she's better in six weeks, was it the euphorectomy or the chemotherapy? Because we really don't know. It's perfectly reasonable, you know, to do that. And you're sitting there with this sick patient. I kind of think NAB paclitaxel could be an advance over the plain paclitaxel. As the FDA pointed out, it does have different pharmacology. And it also has maybe a different biologic mechanism, and that being that the microalbumin delivery of not just we've started with paclitaxel, but perhaps other drugs, may actually be associated with a better therapeutic index for the drug because of active transport and all these little spark ligands and all things. I think that could be true. There's some elegant preclinical work. So I think it's not just a safer delivery system, which I like in the office when I use it. Every few months, we have a bad hypersensitivity reaction. So I think it's nice to eliminate that. But it may turn out to be a better therapy. I think the problem is cost. It's really costly to do this. Dr. Henningsen? In a patient like this that got adjuvant chemotherapy, 
was seen to be controlled on hormones and then in the setting of pregnancy and off of hormones progresses very rapidly. Do you think that they might do better with hormone treatment than chemotherapy? Well, I think Hi was trying to make that point, and we all teach that to our fellows, that you try to use the hormonal therapy as long as possible. As I said, I'm more convinced by the AI trastuzumab data that I just saw showing the very rapid progression in those patients. And Ken Osborne saying in the preclinical models that these tumors that are ER positive and HER2 positive have some crosstalk, and they actually are much poorer prognosis. So, you know, it is possible that she could do fine with hormonal therapy. I think if I were Jeff sitting there with her, I would give her chemotherapy from the way he describes. And that's got to be your decision, really, in talking to her. We had a 31-week baby so we could deliver the baby, but I've seen cases, and it worries me, what if the baby was earlier? You have metastatic disease. What do you do then? Well, still, safe chemotherapy regimens in pregnancy. After the first trimester is when you usually wait to give chemotherapy. And MD Anderson did publish data using FAC in less than 100 patients, but it was a big collection of patients showing very little toxicity. So when I've had a pregnant patient different than this situation that's in the second trimester, I've used usually AC. You can also use a taxane that's been reported. What about trastuzumab? What do we know about that? I don't know anything about using that in a pregnant patient. I'd be very concerned. My understanding is there's not much data, if at all, on that. Do we know anything about that? I've not seen it, and I would have shared the same reservation because of the cardiac. Those antibodies cross the placenta. And I'd be nervous about that. Even though that heart should be fully formed, I just... Wouldn't have done it either. I just want to go back to the initial discussion and look at the flip side of it. I have patients who want to retain fertility and need chemotherapy, and let's assume they're ER negative. The Italians had a presentation at ASCO about three years ago where they'd used an LHRH to protect the ovaries during chemotherapy. Do you know where that stands now? Is there data? Well, I know Dr. Okte, who does a lot of this work and actually published a review in a paper in JCO, totally doesn't believe in that. He thinks that we're absolutely wrong by doing that. It doesn't protect the ovaries. So he's an expert in that, and I have to believe what he says. I've had patients who've asked me that, and I've done it, but I, I'm not sure that it's really helpful. And I think there's actually a trial looking at that, yeah. isn't there? Right. It's so above I'll... 40. It's a slightly different design, but there is a trial. I'm not sure that's not going to turn out to work. There are a few series. The one I know that's been updated is from Kevin Fox at Penn, and it's also been done by the Brits. And what they do show is they certainly maintain menses in most of these patients. You start a few weeks ahead and you maintain menses. I think the issues are menses don't equal fertility. So we don't know, and the experiments are tough because a lot of these women aren't going to get pregnant anyway, so we don't know that. And then there's a theoretical problem. Maybe that's bad for the cancer. Maybe that's like giving concurrent endocrine therapy and chemotherapy, and we really don't know that. But that's conceivably something that could work. I think it is problematic, and like Sandy, I've done it once or twice, but there are published data, and I should add, uh, plug, ASCO has done some recommendations on fertility and maintenance of fertility. They just put out a really nice and JCO consensus. And they don't recommend that, but they review a lot of the current data. So I think between the clinical trial and some of the follow-up, it'll be helpful. In vitro fertilization and storing is the safest thing. Of course, you've got to have six, eight weeks of time right. to do that. Right. And I find it's hard to convince a patient to wait two weeks once they've decided to do. So it's a hard thing. Dr. Barbara? I had a question. When you want to use an AI in someone who is premenopausal 
and you give them Luprone, how do you decide when they're actually postmenopausal, where it's safe to give the AI? I recently had this problem with a woman who was 37, and I wanted to try hormone therapy again before treating metastases. I actually used Fazlodex, but if I wanted to use an AI, you just can't start Luprone and AI at the same time. It takes time for the Luprone to work. What do you use as your guideline? The data I know is it takes about a week or two to really get like testosterone, you know, estri- at least in men with prostate cancer, you get a huge surge of LSH and FSH over the first few days. And then you turn off that pituitary oscillator or whatever it is. So about a week or two later, you're at very low levels of estrogen at that time. So if I did it, I would wait a few weeks before putting the AI. That being said, I'm not sure there's any great risk starting the, you know, for convenience sake of the patient. But based on the pharmacology, I would wait a few weeks after doing that. I think in the clinical trials, like the TEX trial, you start the LHRH agonist even before the chemotherapy, which is one of the issues in this big trial that a lot of people are nervous about, myself included. But that was, you know, we made it by committee and that was the final vote. But it takes about a week or two to suppress them. I want to just take just a couple of minutes and take a diversion away from the data and talk a little bit about being an oncologist and taking care of patients like this in this situation and how you deal with it. Jeff, what are your thoughts about taking care of this lady? I seem to have a preponderance of these 30-something-year-old patients with metastatic breast cancer. You have to really sit down and have long discussions with them about what to expect because very often they have some blinders on of you know, what life is going to be like over the next few years. So while I try not to be brutally honest with them, I still want them to know that they have at best a few years left. And I try and be available to them as much as possible, though that can be quite a burden on my staff and as well as myself because they tend to want to call at all hours. How do you deal with it yourself personally? You're, how long are you out of training now? Three years. How do you deal with it? A lot of drinking. Do you want that edited? <laughs> I don't know that I've seen, maybe somebody has here seen what the incidence of alcohol abuse and drug abuse and psychiatric problems are in oncologists. How do you do this? How do you deal with it, You have Jeff? to have a lot of outside interests. You have to have your family behind you at all times. You know, I come home to two children every night who are happy to see me, and it makes forgetting work that much easier. Steve? I find that what helps me is my staff and my colleagues, you verbalize these cases a lot to each other and to the nurses, and everybody obviously feels absolutely horrible and extremely sympathetic for the case. And I think that helps me a lot in terms of just sort of diffusing that stress and that, you know, just talking with colleagues. Yeah, I'd emphasize the support of other colleagues, really, in terms of being able to share these problems, which are just absolutely insurmountable. And just hearing that, yes, the problems are insurmountable and getting the confirmation that what you're doing is, may not have data behind it, but is probably right getting that support is really very, very important to getting through that patient and getting on to the next patient with an equally insurmountable problem. Alan, you've actually published about the issue of spirituality and religion in oncology. Where does that fit in? Well, I think it helps in dealing with these types of very difficult problems very often as we do as oncologists. If you have some kind of philosophical or spiritual perspective on how to think about the things that we deal with every day, and I don't think that necessarily gives you any particular answer but I think it's important to think about what does this all mean and 
how can we live with what it is that we're seeing? One of the things that I saw and one of the things you wrote was the question of how often do you actually ask your patient what are your spiritual or religious beliefs? Am I correct in saying yes. that you found it wasn't asked very often? Yeah, we actually did a small study at St. Vincent's when I was there, and it's been borne out in the literature. Physicians rarely ask their patients about their spiritual beliefs or religious beliefs. And most of the data seems to show that patients welcome those kinds of questions. And there are different ways you can ask the question. For example, you might want to say to someone at their first visit, is there anything that you'd like me to know about your beliefs or your outlook on life that would be important for me to know as a physician? Those kinds of things that tell the patient that you're kind of welcoming to listening to them about what their life is about. I'm curious, Jeff, this is a young person. A lot of these things take years to develop in people. Where is she at right now, and what are her spiritual or religious beliefs? Well, fortunately, she has such a strong social backing with her husband and her parents are around. She goes to church. She's pretty regular. But at least philosophically, I've developed this idea that my goal isn't to make, obviously, everybody live forever. I had a patient I just treated for about the last 16 months with metastatic pancreas cancer. And 10 months ago, he said, I have one goal, Jeff, is that the beginning of October, my daughter's getting married. I just got to get there. Somehow we made it. He went to the wedding. They brought me all the pictures. And he died about three, four days ago. But they sent me a beautiful letter saying how thankful they were that at least he got to make the wedding. It was okay that he died. He died with dignity and with his family around him. I mean, to me, you people are saints, and so are nurses. And what I hear a lot from oncologists is what you just said, that they focus on what they're doing for the person, Mm -hmm. not what they can't do. Hi, what are your thoughts about all this, these kind of devastating situations? Yeah, I don't think you ever get used to it. And perhaps if you do, we need to be doing something else. So... I call those two scotch nights, you know, and I have had a fair amount of them. It's having good colleagues and friends to reassure you that you've done your best or kind of to empathize with you, you know, to just agree that this was a very seriously ill patient and we did the right thing. But I don't think you ever get quite used to it. I also think we're a very pre-selected group, probably all of us around the table, because I think if you got into your fellowship... And when you're a fellow, you see these patients, too, and you really couldn't handle it. No one would be around here now. They would have gotten out early because a lot of people, I just think, cannot pick this as a specialty after just a few years. They do something else. And in my career, I've had fellows come in, and six, eight months later, I've seen them leave the program. And a lot of times, it's really ever academic ability. It's just dealing with the kinds of patients. So I think we are pre-selected that we probably like high-impact medicine, You know, that we might not be very happy in the acne clinic, all of us. We like the impact. We get a lot of sharing and help from our friends, but I think we never get used to it. And the hardest thing now, you'd think with all the tools we had, we'd be doing better. But I'm not so certain how much more we're helping people with metastatic breast cancer and things. Truly, I mean, in measured in years and things. So I think it's a tough thing. And for me personally, it's dealing with my friends and my wife and family are very helpful. They see this in you. Sandy, can you comment? Sure. I have to agree with what Jeff said about philosophically. I, over the years, have really felt that it was important to develop a relationship with a patient and find out what's important to them. And it could be spiritual, because I do ask those questions. Does your faith help you? Is it important to you? So I really do try, even on the first visit, frequently to find out what is important to them. Is it their grandchild or their husband, what do they need? 
and I follow them throughout their whole course. And I've seen in my life, as many of you have, some physicians can't deal with that at all, and they basically abandon patients. So I feel that one of my strengths is I don't do that, as Jeff had described too with his patient. I really can help them at the end, help them to try to cope with it. And the way I put it to a lot of patients at the beginning, and in a way it's a gift because it's a gift of time. If you go in the street and get hit by a bus, you don't have any time. You don't prepare. This way you have time. You can make the best of your time. So I do try to work with a patient on that. So that's one way I do it. I agree it is very hard. When I was at Georgetown, I saw these kind of patients all the time. They were all young with young children, and it does take a toll. And for me, unfortunately, I don't have as many outside interests because I love working and One other way that I cope with it is by doing clinical trials because I feel for me that at least I'm trying to make some progress because if I were just seeing patients and not trying to ask other questions, it would be really hard for me. And also by teaching. I love teaching the fellows whom I know will be our next generation of leaders in oncology. So that's how I get a lot of my positive strength from. Alan? One other thing I'd add, I organized a few years ago a series of interfaith dialogues about spiritual issues in medical care. And one of the ones I think about a lot was we had one about sadness, where we had a dialogue between a Franciscan friar, a very well-known scholar by the name of Richard Rohr, and a rabbi from UCLA named Chaim Seidlerfeller. And I think about it a lot, because what Rohr talked about was he said how important it is to get what he said, getting out of the fixing mode. And how I translate that into common sense advice is that often doctors and nurses faced with a very difficult situation, they jump into reassuring the patient too soon. And what Rohr said, and other physicians, psychiatrists that said this as well, you don't want to initially try to fix. The first step is to allow the person to express their emotions and to empathize. So that's what I got from Rohr, getting out of that fixing mode. But then from the rabbi, is kind of very interesting also. He said in the Hasidic tradition, there's this view that you're commanded to be joyful. So what I got out of that is you kind of follow the patient into their sadness, you get out of that fixing mode, but then remember that you're actually commanded to get that patient out of their sadness, kind of you're commanded to be joyful and try to find some way to get the patient out of their sadness. So I don't know, I find that a useful way to thinking about it. Where does humor fit in, if at all? Chuck? I was going to comment on that. I'm in a relatively large group. I have nine other physicians, and we use a lot of black humor and things that are totally inappropriate. And it's funny. I mean, (laughs) a lot of it's funny, and it's the way we deal with it. One of my partner's fathers was in vaudeville, and this fellow has a very, very keen sense of humor, and we laugh. And a lot of times we laugh so we don't cry. And we just look at the absurdity of many of the situations, and it helps me get through the day. It really does. Dr. Barbara? I was just going to say one way I deal with patients is to help them focus on here and now. You can't deal with metastatic breast cancer wondering whether you're going to live two years, three years, four years, but you can focus on now and feeling well and doing what you want to do tomorrow, travel, enjoy whatever you like to do. And you know, the future will come. I mean, they do have a way of knowing that the future is not pleasant, but they try and focus on now. And that's what I do in my personal life and with dealing with patients. Dr. Weintraub? Just two parts. First of all, I always look at who comes with the patient. This is extremely important, especially, in, you said something mentioned, the husband comes. Mm-hmm. Most of the young women I take care of, and we all have a lot of young women with metastatic breast cancer now, don't come with their husbands. They come with their friends. I want to make sure, and I always say to them, who's your support system? 
Who comes with them? If they come alone, that's very bad. If they don't come with their husband, there's something wrong. And then I have a psychiatric support system in the office. We have psychiatric social workers. I want them to talk to the husband. I want to know where the husband is. Is he in denial? Is he in anger? We all forget about the spouse. But that spouse, I right now have one, a young lawyer who basically dissociated from his wife who died with metastatic breast cancer. But he has to raise the four kids now. See, that's one of the issues with your woman who's pregnant, is somebody has to raise that baby. So I'm very interested in who comes with the patient, what's your support system. When I give you bad news, who's going to hold your hand? That's one. Two is, I really impress upon them very carefully when I tell them they have metastatic disease, that you have a chronic disease. It's the one beauty of doing breast cancer, unlike my partner who does lung cancer, because they don't have chronic disease. So I try to remind them it's like treating diabetes or high blood pressure. We're going to switch. We go with the winner. We flip away from a loser. And very much like what we saw at the playoffs, unfortunately, in a bad analogy. You go with the winner. You go with your Zelota. You go with your Femara. You switch from a loser, and you switch to something else. But it's a chronic disease. Fortunately, when you do breast cancer, we have 20, 30-year survivors. And all of us, and you'll have this as you do this as long as we've done this, you will see women with metastatic breast cancer for 10, 20 years who just come in either every month or every three months or every week or on Herceptin maintenance. And that will keep you going because you see the long-term survivors. Hi, we just published an audio program where Chuck Vogel presented a whole bunch of people with metastatic disease, and a couple were just what you said, long-term survivors. But an oncologist emailed me in, and we actually published his email saying, you know, I'm tired of hearing people talk about breast cancer as a chronic disease like diabetes. People die, and they die pretty soon, and we're misleading people by using that term. What do you think about that concept? Is it realistic to view metastatic breast cancer as a chronic disease? Well, I think it's overused personally. And I don't think it's really supported by the data. And I just wanted to comment. I think that's a great comment you made about who comes. I think the men get left out. When their wives get breast cancer, they do have their friends. And I had a guy pull me aside one day, and he said, you know, no one ever asks about me. And I think one of the problems why all those women are there is the men don't have a clue. You know, they have this wife, kids. Now they have to make sandwiches in the morning. They have to figure out how to get these kids to school. If it wasn't for my wife, I mean, I'd probably die in two weeks <laughs> of starvation, of lack of heat. I mean, she, it's true. And I think what's happening is a lot of these guys, their wives get breast cancer and they're very sick. And now all the things in life they don't know how to do are on them. And what I try to do is now make it a line item in my interview is when I see the spouse, I say, how are you doing? And I make sure his wife is there and I got the eye contact and to see. And if I detect a problem, we've had just had a big breast day for our patients and we had a men's retreat, right. not for guys with BRCA1 and all of that, but for plain guys whose wives have really been the pillar of that family, even though the wives may have been working too, and who now don't know how to deal with life anymore. I think it's a great point. And I'm sorry I digressed. No, it's, it's, I think that's it's a, what this is all your about. Your point is great. Just relevant to that, did the husband of this patient support her, or was he in the same page with her when she stopped her tamoxifen and got pregnant? He pretty much let her make the decision. Just one more thing. I have an observation. I don't know if any of you have seen this. Women, very, very rich women from upper areas who get breast cancer right after their husband divorces them. 
or the husband's doing things on the side. And they come in, and they usually they come alone or they come with their friend, and I'll say to them, where's your husband? And I know right away. They got breast cancer. So the question is, and this is really a controversial issue, what is the role of stress? And have any of you seen this, where a lot of women get breast cancer after they get divorced? Hi, are you a believer in the stress increases risk of cancer, including breast cancer concept? I'm not a believer. Sandy? And I wouldn't be either, especially in the cases you described, because we know that breast cancer usually has been around for many, many years. Most of it's ERPR positive, so it's been around 8, 10, 12 years before we even detect it. So I am also not a believer in that whole concept. 